I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 67, we're going to try a little change of pace. We're going to have this post-2020 election episode. We have a few articles here that we're going to discuss. Then we're going to pontificate a little bit and hopefully uh, shed more light than heat on uh, what happened in 2020. So to kick us off, we have this article from Ron Brownstein, who's a, he's a politics watcher and kind of an elections pro. And he's broken down some of the data already. Now we know that the polls were, had serious errors, especially in uh, states like Florida and these guys in the polling industry are definitely going to have to go back to the drawing board and figure things out. I think this is probably the second straight time that, that Nate Silver has been completely wrong. Although he will say that he was right. Somehow. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, that said, I, I followed every twist and turn, uh, of five thirty eight as well as the New York times needle, which was a complete joke because all that really tells you is, I'm not sure what that thing told me. I mean, yeah, the one the one for Georgia just shifted all of a sudden. Yeah. You know, it's like well, it was an eighty nine percent, and then it was, I don't know. Yeah, that that didn't really work. So that's really irritating. So I'm not looking at the needle ever again, <laughs> um, at least until next time. But uh, anyway, we also know that the that exit polls had serious problems, and hopefully the you know they'll try to work their their wizardry, their sophistry in order to make it fit the, the electorate. It probably won't, but at the very least, hopefully it can improve right now. It's not accurate at all. That said, Brownstein has dived into the details that we do know. And this is what we know. Biden won and he held, he's, he's winning by, he, he was able to win by holding just enough ground. He says in the rust belt States, that have been trending away from the Democrats while gaining just enough new terrain in the Sun Belt battlegrounds. So what we know is Trump was able to really increase his numbers in these working class states. The vote for both of them was the highest, you know, in a uh, hundred years. Percentage wise, it's the highest since I forgot what, 1908, but in terms mm-hmm. of raw numbers biden has the most votes ever and trump in 2020 here also has the second most votes ever so they both were able to get their people out and clear their numbers but biden was able to make advances in the inner suburbs of major metropolitan areas and that's how he was able to squeak it out in georgia and arizona Uh, while at the same time trump really made gains with hispanic voters especially in Florida, in Texas, but also in Nevada. And mm-hmm. he was also to make, able to make gains with uh, African-Americans, especially African-American men. So the point of Brownstein's article here that I think is kind of interesting is the t- it's entitled Democrats' 2024 problem is already clear. And what, what he's really making clear is, you know, in 2016, Trump was able to pull, draw an inside straight 
And this time Biden kind of was too, because he was, he's white, old man, comes from a working class background. You know, he'll tell you he's from Scranton every chance Mm -hmm. he gets. He does. But it's funny because it's even, it's the same states by similar narrow margins, even the same electoral difference. I think they both end up with three or six where Trump was supposed to before all that faithless elector stuff in 2016 which i hope we avoid this time but yeah they were they he was able to steal back just a little of that of that uh area that was trending to the republicans but it yeah and it was in it it was built it's not the same coalition that that bill clinton or barack obama put together though and i think that's what that's what brownstein sees as the problem here for democrats is that you know um Clinton did sort of the same thing. He sort of bridged the progressive moderate gap. You know, he, he was able to speak to both sides. Also come from a humble upbringing and could identify with folks, who, you know, from that working class, especially the white Southern working class that he was from. He was able to, I mean, Clinton won like Louisiana, Kentucky, you know, some of these states that we don't even think about as anywhere close anymore. Biden's, Biden's coalition is a little different. Um, it is more heavily based in the cities, which is limiting in some ways he's starting to get into the suburbs because the suburbs are starting to look like the cities electorally but i think kind of kind of what brownstein's saying here is if if, what if the republicans have a candidate who is not as personally objectionable to so many people to put it politely what you know what if whoever runs in 2024 has to face somebody who can make a more compelling pitch to suburban moderates to right you know to these upscale suburbs that are you know getting real woke and it's very fashionable to be you know anti-trump out here in these suburbs but it's uh it's not as fashionable to be anti i don't know rubio like who cares right i mean it's not a it's not the galvanizing movement that it was there's no resistance to josh hawley there's no you know there's no anti nikki haley marches maybe there will be but i feel like trump is a sort of a lightning rod and and he turned out his people too like you were saying it worked for both sides with record turnout so, you know, is, is there going to be another, you know, if, if Kamala Harris runs in 2024, is she going to be able to get those same turnouts in the, in the suburban Detroit and suburban Milwaukee and suburban Philadelphia? I don't know. It makes it a lot harder. And there's not a lot of other places for them to grow, I don't think. I, I'm not sure what what states they could get that they didn't get this time. Yeah, so we have two salient trends that Brownstein's pointing to that I think all of us are seeing, and it's going to be fascinating to see more of the data as it rolls in. But on the one hand, you have these Rust Belt states, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania especially, but also Michigan, that are trending Republican. Ohio, which used to be the bellwether state, is pretty fully Republican now. Iowa, I mean, there was expectation that that was going to potentially be Biden. It ended up not being very close. And uh, Joni Ernst was able to win her race pretty comfortably also. So you have these Rust Belt states that are trending Republican. Biden was able to squeak by by running up the score in suburbs of a lot of Republican voters, frankly, who didn't like Trump. And he was able to get just enough of white working class because of his background that he was able to squeak through. Where, and then the other trend, though, is Sunbelt states, Georgia, Arizona, uh, potentially Texas down the line. I don't think that's close right now, but I, but no. 2028 it could be. But you have the you have these Sunbelt states that are trending a little bit more Democratic. And the real question is, 
which trend is moving faster and <laughs> which one will meet first? I mean, so as you said, like Kamala Harris, Brownstein doesn't see her as being particularly competitive in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and maybe not even Michigan. I, I think that sounds right because is she going to mm-hmm. be able to pull some of these Scranton white working class voters that, that Biden was able to get? I mean, unlikely. And then this time in 20, in 2020, you're really relying on actually Republican voters or, or you're talking about independents who lean Republican, who hated Trump or couldn't vote for him, either voted for Biden or vote, wrote someone in. And you kind of have to count on them to also be dem- to vote democratic next time around. Then in the, in the, the Sunbelt States, well, there's a lot of people moving to them. I mean, mm-hmm. Texas is changing, not so much. I mean, the, this uh, Hispanic portion of the population hasn't changed as much as the California portion of the Texas <laughs> electorate has changed. You're having all these Im- implants that are that are moving from other states and so many uh, northeastern states. And COVID obviously has been an accelerator for this for for Georgia, for Florida. And suburbs are changing, and obviously the the demographics are changing as far as uh, Gen Z and even some millennials are not quite as white as they were, and you have more more upscale college educated. So that's changing, but which one is changing faster? It's hard to tell. And so you know, moving forward, uh, a Kamala Harris in twenty twenty four really needs to w- to win Georgia and Arizona and probably somewhere else. And Republicans, if Trump's not on the ballot, can he really run up the score with white working class and folks who hadn't really voted before? Are those folks going to show up for a, a Marco Rubio or, you know, a, a Tom Cotton? I mean, yeah, and I think I think part of the trend you're seeing in the South is what's been going on s- slowly since the 60s is that the South is starting to vote like the rest of America. You know, I mean, before civil rights movement, everyone who could vote in the South was a Democrat, even though the rest of the Democrat Party didn't really line up with them because it was, you know, because of Lincoln and Sherman and, and Grant, you know. But after 100 years, they started to get over that. And now, I mean, like you see the three three House seats that the Democrats took from Republicans were all in the South, all in suburbs. Yeah. You know, that's that's those suburbs, if they were in Pennsylvania or Illinois, would have been Democrat already. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think what you're getting is upscale suburban voters turning against, turning toward a party that is acting more in their interests and in the interests of, you know, banking, Silicon Valley, bureaucracy, um, government unions, all basically the same factors that turn upscale suburbs to democratic interests here in the, in the North. But I think the South is just sort of being a little less different these days. And, you know, rural areas are getting more red, you know, just like rural areas in the north and the west. Uh, And maybe that's part of part of what you're saying about people moving. That that could be part of it, too. I mean, if somebody moves from up north to down south, they're not going to change their politics, you know, just because they move into a new town. And they're not going to also be burdened by the uh, 150 year legacy of you know Civil War party splits and, and things that have, you know, made a lot of birthright type Democrats who really, you know, oh, it was only in our lifetime that they stopped adhering to that party, even after it had long become a party that 
wasn't particularly interested in them. So I, I think there's that. And then maybe that same thing's at work in the uh, in Arizona too. I, I don't know as much about what's going on down there. I mean, Arizona's always had a lot of people moving in from out of state, yeah, from the, from the Midwest and from other places. So, I mean, I think there's that. But I, I think this, this idea that the, the South being different, I think it's less different now. And that's sort of what it might make some of those states closer that used to be easy wins for Republicans. But I don't think it's a full scale shift like the, the turn Texas blue folks think it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Those are good points. And then another factor that we have is the Hispanic vote. You and I talked about this in a, in a prior broadcast, a couple of them that Trump was heading towards getting a higher share. And he did, uh, he, he didn't did. quite hit 40%, but, uh, but he's probably in the mid thirties is what we'll find out. And in Florida, it was like 45%. So in Texas and in Florida, especially, and, and some in Nevada, I think we're going to find out, uh, he was really able to expand his share of the Hispanic vote. And that has Democrats like shell shocked completely. Yeah. That's kind of the funniest thing about the, the turn Texas blue thing is they, they were starting to get those numbers out of the big cities in Texas. Like uh, Kevin Williamson talks about this all the time. The cities in Texas are democratic. Like that's, you know, they're not that different from Northern cities. Right. Houston, Houston right, right. run by Democrats, Dallas is, I think uh, Fort Worth used to be somewhat Republican, but Trump lost it this time. But then he made it up in the Rio Grande Valley, which was the most democratic part of Texas for decades. And he's, he's winning. He was winning counties down there that, you know, Republicans had never won coming close in other ones that used to be 50 point spreads. Now they're five point spreads. So it, that it seems like it's, it, it seems like you're trying to I don't know. It's uh, it's like a puzzle with an extra piece. You know, they keep trying to fit it together and then something else pops out. You know, maybe right. they're maybe maybe it's not as easy as they <laughs> they thought it would be. They just thought, well, you know, as more Texas gets more Hispanic and more northerners are moving there we're just going to win them, you know, and we're going to keep what we already have. Well, that, that second part, like by shifting to the, you know, more Northern oriented, progressive urban politics ended up losing a lot of rural whites and rural Hispanics. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's kind of funny just how unpredictable it all is. It goes to a point that you and I have made on prior podcasts, which is the parties are, they're not static. I mean, it continues mm-hmm. to change and it's, it's a shifting landscape all the time. And Trump actually, in 2020 and even in 2019, I mean, there was a shift in tone and shift in message. I mean, in, in terms of immigration, there was much more of a focus on, on actually the high skilled immigration and trying to, the administration was more focused on that. There was less conversation about the wall and more outreach, more um, Spanish language commercials and so forth. And, and yeah, and to your point, like as, as Democrats try more and more to reach out to the upscale you know, woke, um, crowd. Well, you got, uh, Congressman Ruben Gallego and a couple other Hispanic members of Democrats saying like, you know, let's stop using fake words like Latin, Latinx. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Uh, He straight up says that. And Trump's gains in among non-white voters has, you know, surprised, you know, woke whites and upper class whites because they, They've been spending four years being offended on behalf of all these other people, but I think I think it was uh, might have been Michael Brendan Doherty or somebody in National Review said that what Trump did was the first step that a lot of Republicans never took was just to ask people for their votes, and he did it in a 
sort of ham-handed way, you know? I mean, it wasn't elegant, but he actually talked to different people who don't usually vote Republican and asked them to vote Republican. And yeah. that got a few, you know, it's not going it, to, it takes more than that, but he actually, you know, and, and I think coupled with the Biden campaign, just completely taking the Hispanic vote for granted, you know, outside of a few Cubans in Miami, they thought they were going to get everybody, you know, from whose ancestors come from any place south of the border. They thought that's, you know, that's our people. We don't really need to make much of an effort. And eventually they started to in the end, but it, like you were saying, Trump was up with Spanish ads. You know, he was he was actually trying. And, it, you know, you don't have to win. It's not going to win everybody, but it's at least a, it's something that the Republican Party can build on. People have to people have to know that you're actually interested in them, I think. And yeah. I think for a lot of years we weren't. And that's, you know, to our detriment. But if it's one, you know, it's, there's going to be a million articles about Trumpism after Trump. I'll probably write a few. But that's part of it, I think, is that reaching out to communities that we had typically ignored or just written off as unwinnable. Yeah, so the the pressure for Republicans is going to be, well, I think there's a lot of confidence that if Trump is not the candidate, then some of these suburbs could return to the Republican column. And the evidence for that is the Senate races were won across, pretty much across the board. And Republicans gained, could be 12, could be more seats. At, at a minimum, it's going to be, I think, eight. And yeah, all of the prognosticators had predicted that, that Republicans would lose 10 to 15 seats. And so they're going to end up gaining, you know, a dozen seats or so, which is, was pretty remarkable. But mm-hmm. so what does a, what does a post Trump party look like? You and I have talked about this. What would a working class party look like? And again, we don't even know if Trump could turn around and run again in 2024, which would, <laughs> which would uh, reset the table in a in hundred ways as well. But, but Noah Rothman wrote this article entitled the problem with the working class GOP. He's pretty skeptical. Yeah. Now this article, um, yeah, it kind of takes the opposite point of view of what a lot of people are saying. You know, he quotes Rubio as saying the future of the party is based on a multi-ethnic, multi-racial working class coalition. And that's kind of what I, I've, we've been talking about here. I've, I've been saying that, but Rothman make, makes some good points about how, how do you fuse sort of the same problem as the Democrats had in Texas? How do you fuse all these new parts, all these, you know, somewhat more active government in the interest of working people onto a party that also has a considerable libertarian wing. How can they coexist? And is the other party just going to pick up those issues? Like he, he says, you know, is, is, do we expect the democratic party to become the party of fiscal responsibility now? And if not, are we both just going to be, you know, spending until we go broke? Cause that, that can't last forever. Yeah. There, has, there has to be somebody in Washington who's saying, hey, you know, we've either got to raise a tax or cut a program or something because we're, eventually we will run out. And that's always, you know, we've had to be the bad guys on that one. Nobody likes to hear it, but somebody has to do it. And if as a part of the new Trumpist spirit, we uh, take on the president's attitude on debt, which is to not care about it, you know, and that's what we've been doing for four years. You know, how, how long can we do that? I mean, how can how can you build a party on that? Are the Democrats going to take up entitlement reform? Probably not. Yeah. So are we just going to like battle to see who can spend more? Again, it's 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 a sort of a death spiral. And I've thought about this because how do you, you know, how do you attract union workers, which I think Trump did, but without with without also being in the pocket of national headquarters of the ACLU, which I think is often 
I mean, all the national union heads all endorsed Biden. Trump was going after the membership. Right. That's right. fine. But if you if you really want to be a pro union party, you end up with the union leadership in, in on your side too. And then what does that mean? Does it does that mean you're gonna go so far in their direction that you are just, you know, giving up one vested interest for another, you know, or because the Democrats are pretty pro corporate in a lot of ways, but they're not gonna talk about free markets the way we do. You know, they're not I don't I can't see it's hard to see a full reversal on that. So I and I don't know. I mean that's part of the craziness of this realignment is we don't we don't know how this goes. I mean maybe we'll people have talked about well, one of these books we read, it might have been Aaron Cass's book, talked about the German style unions that are currently illegal here because of the, the way the Wagner Act is, but you know, the way the Germans have union membership on the board and you know it's a sort of a halfway in between the adversarial thing we have now maybe it could be something like that i don't know i mean there's a lot can change in these next four years but certainly as it stands now i i think rothman makes some good points about how do you how do you put together a party full of interests that are kind of opposed to each other and, and i'm really glad that he's writing an article about debt deficit entitlements i mean these are these are issues <laughs> that concern me as well i mean they definitely animate me and like you, I've given that some thought too. I mean, how, how is that going to fit together? Because there's a lot to like about a working class GOP. Mm-hmm. I, I also think that deficits and debt are a serious problem <laughs> that we're going to have. We're facing this ticking time bomb that's going to blow up on my kids. And if yeah. not my kids, then certainly my grandkids, but probably my kids. But I mean, he makes the point. Democrats will not become the party of austerity or entitlement reform anytime soon. And uh, of course, that's absolutely right, I, I believe. But I think he does go too far where he, he basically says it's not possible to have two parties that are fiscally irresponsible, basically. And I think it is. <laughs> think well, it we kind of we kind of have it now. So. Yeah, that's what we have. We've done it for four years. Europe's been doing it for 50. You know, it can be done. It's just it's just a mess. Right. And so but it raises the same point that we read in a, in a, in a prior article you know, when we're talking Lehman's article talking about the different, the different factions that will be competing to take over the Republican party post Trump, you have the reversionist or whatever he called it, basically the, the folks who want to get back to where we were, the, yeah, take the time machine back to the administration or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, I think you and I were both skeptical of that, but I certainly believe that a lot of what, what concerns them still concerns a lot of folks, including me. I mean, I I, th- I think that Social Security should be dealt with. I think Medicare is really a great program, but is you know over budget and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, and is potentially going to run out of money in the next you know six or eight years, and that's hugely problematic. So, how how do you pull this together? We read Meyer, who was kind of the trailblazer in pulling together the fusionism, you know, pulling together the social conservative and the and the libertarian. I think now probably the, the super, uh, the national security super hawks, the neocons are they're They're the ones where the music stops and they don't have a chair. But I think that the fiscally responsible slash libertarian, like Paul Ryan wing will have a chair. This working class GOP future will have a chair, sort of the bigger tent, more Hispanics will have a, will have a chair. So I think it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, and I, I think it's that making the dollars and cents work is only part of it too. Because I think a lot of what 
is moving people one way or the other is uh, not just social issues, but just just the the impression that each party gives the people it looks fondly upon, the people it looks down upon. Absolutely, people people get that, and that you know, I mean, that we've we've talked about this in previous presidential campaigns. You know, it's who do you want to have a beer with? Uh, you know, or what what have you? Actually, Trump and Biden don't even drink, so nobody was having a beer with anybody. But <laughs> the you know that, but that that thing, you know, that who do you want to watch a ball game with? Who do you want to hang out with? And I, I used to think this was just emotionalism, but I think there's also a you get you take the measure of the man, you know who who are his people, and I you know not in a racial sense, but in just a what kind what kind of a guy is he? You know what, what and what kind of people does he want to build up? What kind of people is he tearing down? I think that is what's moving people around, and just the way a lot of uh, sort of the Andrew Yang wing of the Democratic Party looks at working class Americans as obsolete. Right, I think that right. that turns people off, but that's the that's the true vibe coming out of that Silicon Valley mindset is that uh, we're going to give you a good social media stuff to keep you busy. We're going to legalize weed. Welfare is going to be okay. Going to give you a check. Yeah, you know, you want a job? Well, there's not any left. Sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. I don't think people want to live like that for the most part, and that's what they saw in in. In Trump and what they see in successors to Trump, like Hawley and Rubio, is someone who says, "No, we we can rebuild this. We can make this a place where you can get a job again, and you don't have to have three college degrees to get it." Yeah. So I yeah. I think that I mean, and whether how much that costs and whether it's how how much of it is possible is I think again it's less important than just the ask, just the fact that they're asking and, and they're saying, "I want to help you." You know, I understand that you're having a problem. Like the, the Clintonian, I feel your pain, you know, which, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. again, at the time when I was a young libertarian conservative, I thought this was, I don't want to feel my pain. I want to balance a budget. Right. But <laughs> I didn't have a lot of pain. I was 19. Now it's, you know, it makes you makes you think, I think. And that's that's the vibe that helped Trump. And we'll see if anybody else can you know strap that on. All right. Well, in our last several minutes, we also want to turn to this Los Angeles Times opinion. That's not usually our place of, you know, finding interesting stuff, but this time (laughs) it was because this is the title. We turned over our letters page to Trump readers for a day. Here's what they wrote. He says, in our decade of editing this page, there's never been a period when quarreling readers have seemed so implacably at odds with each other. So as one small attempt to bridge the divide, we're providing today a page full of letters from Trump supporters. We thought this would be fun to kind of pick out some some nuggets from some of these letters to the editor because Kyle, I know you, me, we have so many uh, liberal friends, you know, people that we've gone to school with, people that we work with. And I've had this conversation billions and billions of times by now because Mm -hmm. they still view anyone who voted or supports Trump must be, you know, a racist and a bigot and hateful. In fact, that's not what they are at all. And I have this conversation so many times, but here in their own words are quite a few of these folks. So we thought we'd pick out a few and discuss. So for example, this guy says he's Republican or he has been. He says, I could not bring myself to vote for either Hillary Clinton or Trump in 2016, but I've been so stunned at the bias, lack of common sense and civility, false accusations, name calling and twisting of words. <laughs> But he he's like, I just had to go to Trump. And he said in 2020, 
With great hesitation and caution, I cast my ballot for Trump because he defends religious liberty and the lives of unborn children. Now, this is one that's high on the list of a lot of uh, a lot of Trump supporters that I know, and obviously I mm-hmm. know a lot, is that they really feel, I mean, that the religious liberty is under attack. And we just saw uh, Justice Alito give a similar speech. There is a strong feeling that it's cultural encroachment and the feeling that you know, our, we have this, we have this religion and this practice and this lifestyle and this culture that has been so successful for us and has brought us happiness and it's under attack. Like we can't do it. This but political correctness, the wokeness is just a direct frontal assault on, uh, on religious liberty. Yeah. And, and, uh, that's something that I could see that a lot of people didn't believe he would stand for in 2016, but he has, I don't know if that was, I didn't think that would play out, but just, and that and uh, and being pro-life in a way that I don't think Trump was in his prior life, you know. But uh, since becoming president, he actually stood up for that cause with every person who believes. He, you know, he did he did what he said he would do in that respect. Right. Another another letter I saw that kind of reflected some things I've heard from a few people. This guy says. I'm a lifelong mainstream liberal Democrat, but I grew up in a small, poor, all-white, working-class town. The place was once heavily Democrat, but now it's Trump country. Why? The problem isn't the Democratic Party. It's the left wing of the party, which has managed to turn off many Americans. I don't need to be told that the people I grew up with are not well-educated. They sometimes hold backward views, but they're among the best people I've ever known. They won't respond to unreasonable positions, open borders, defunding of the police, or to smug condescension, basket of deplorables. And I think that that even hurts some moderate Democrats in some of the House races, because even if uh, yeah. if you're if you're talking, you know, even somebody like um, like the Democrat who was representing Staten Island, Max Rose, he was not that radical. But when the main message of your party, the loudest voices are coming from, you know, the squad and them, it drowns out, you know, that elections have been national for a long time now and that it's hard to to play that moderate. People do. I mean, like congressman in the district next to me is a, a moderate republican who won pretty easily um in a county that trump lost so it, it can happen but it's uh it's tough to overcome when the the loudest messages and the messages that are amplified by by social media and by by real media are often not representative of even their own party let alone the whole electorate and those sentiments they propped up in like letter after letter here i mean here's someone saying in times past, classifying people based on their skin color, where they live, and who they vote for would have been considered racist and morally repugnant. Today, these characteristics are used by many, quote, socially progressive people to determine who is who is and who is not racist. How exactly does that make sense? Here's another one. There's just an overemphasis on race. Racism seems the first cause cited by liberals when they discuss the pandemic or education or business or anything. And another one quotes, uh, you know, he, he's... She cites uh, Michelle Obama's comments about about Trump supporters and then says Michelle Obama is a great example of the disdain that 72.7 million people have put up with from elitists like her. Hollywood, Silicon Valley and most of Biden's party have mocked Trump's uh, 72 million voters as racist, misogynist, white supremacist and more. This while some Trump supporters have been violently attacked for wearing Make America Great hats, of course, just happened in D.C., um, mm-hmm. But yeah, there's there's like a really strong sense that really permeates every one of these letters of you guys look down on us. You guys think that we're that we are almost uh, second class 
thinkers and people and we have these outdated views of the world and and uh any vote that we have for for trump or any republican is is per se evidence that that we're racist and bigoted and we really 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 resent that (laughs) yeah and it's i could see why i mean i I resent that Uh, and to get kind of back to the to the brownstein article i think biden's the difference between 2020 and 2016 is biden didn't really come across that way and part of it's because he didn't come across at all you know he was kind of lucky in that he didn't really have to campaign but to the extent he did he he doesn't have that air of disdain for regular folks and yeah i I think that that helps him you know he he, what who knows what's in any of these guys hearts but uh i think he doesn't he certainly doesn't come across as someone who looks down on the kind of folks who wrote these letters you know or i don't even think he yeah he doesn't seem to hate republicans let alone trump voters he disagrees with them you know and and he fights hard for what he believes in he's you know there's a million biden speeches from c-span that you can see with him yelling about something and he's wrong in a lot of them uh you know i'm not trying to say i like everything he stands for but his uh his temperament is not one of uh disdain for large swaths of america and I, i think that probably sold a few more people on him who didn't vote democrat last time yeah well i definitely think that's true and you can see the evidence in the way that trump campaigned against him and and how all Republicans campaigned in 2020, basically saying not saying that he that Biden himself was one of these, but saying that he he would succumb to the pressures mm-hmm. of of the left wing of his party. And and I think you're right. I think that he did stay above that fray at least just enough and gain the trust of of a lot of people. I and, think I think a lot of people were just looking someone for someone to be above the fray a little bit. Yeah, you know, there's some people who have that. We just have that visceral dislike for Trump because of the way he carries himself and the way he acts. And that was, I think that that's enough. Can that win in 2024? Well, you know, it's, I mean, if, if Trump tries to, to run again, I mean, well, I guess I was going to say it will be too old, but he'd, he'd be as old as Biden is now. So I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I still think he'd be too old. So on a related note, there's some serious resentment towards journalism and journalists as well. And, the New York or the LA times here gets called out several times as saying like, you've been so biased. And so, so in the tank for, for Democrats, there's one says, uh, one woman journalist with feigned objectivity blamed Trump and his administration for all the bad things in the world. Well, your objective was achieved. And then she's like, interesting. It will be interesting to see if the LA times can regain the public trust by having fact-based and bias-free journalism. Another one, who was talking about when he was younger, they, they had, they had real trust and respect for newsmen like Walter Cronkite. And today there's just no trust at all. And I think this, this is something you and I have talked about as well. I, I mean, I, I think a lot of us watch or read news. I get paid. I'm basically a professional news consumer <laughs> and, and uh, I have just in a major way, just really lost trust. I mean, I think you, I, I still read everything, but, but you now you know you have to read it with a grain of salt, knowing that so many major iconic outlets that used to be a place for that for real journalism, trustworthy journalism, are an Emmy now. Are, they, they want to be the tip of the sword for the for the revolution, and you got to now. I I mean it's 
kind of stinks because <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you, you have, I mean, you have conservative news and then, uh, and which is kind of a, a little bit of a niche. And then you have all the rest of the news, which is more or less in the tank. So, yeah, I mean, I think of some of the usually more mainstream magazines I used to see around my house growing up. Like, I mean, my dad used to read the Atlantic and, and it was, you know, you'd have all sorts of opinions in there. And, you know, now it's, I guess I've got a couple of conservatives left, but not really. Yeah. And it, yeah. it's, I did, it, it's not, it's not even just that the individual outlets are getting more one-sided, but yeah, there is that sort of blending of, well, it, I mean, it's sort of like the, the loss of objectivity or the denial that objectivity exists. Right. Right. Or that it, it should ever be placed above activism. Yeah. And you've got a lot of like young reporters, you know, kids in their twenties right out of journalism school and they're all fired up for progressive causes. They have, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I think a lot of the older reporters came up through a different system. I mean, they didn't have journalism schools. They came up you know, through as a trade and, you know, covered different kinds of events before they got to be the, the guy right. on the evening news who was right. pontificating. So it's a different sort of experience and it's just a, it seems foolish and kind of childish just how reactionary and I don't mean reactionary in the right wing sense, but just they react to everything and they, it's like Twitter come to life. You know, there's what's the difference between bloggers and, and a lot of the young journalists these days. There is none. Right. So indistinguishable. Yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 I definitely was understanding what these people were writing in the letters here. And, uh, yeah. Cause I felt it too. All right. Any final thoughts? Well, I think we've seen it's kind of a kind of a mixed bag election, and there's some good questions raised here by these two articles. If it's anything like the last four years, there's going to be a lot of issues we didn't anticipate. So, you know, when we talk about what's going to happen in 2024, I mean, even one year ago, we didn't know what was. We had no idea what the biggest issue in this election was going to be. So, who knows? But I think there's trends that are developing and, and they're going to continue to develop in the way the parties are shifting there is a it's clear there's a shift it's clear there's a realignment and uh i think it'll be interesting to see where it leads yeah and even right away i'll be interested to see how this 2021 plays out not only for covid but also we have divided government most likely i i think that it's very likely republicans will probably win both georgia seats but at least one of them and retain control of the senate and that being the case you will have divided government and you know where does where does uh, President Elect Joe Biden go with this? Does he does he kind of walk the talk that he's that he's been uh, giving us uh, throughout the campaign? And and if so, are there places where some bipartisanship can come through? I mean, obviously, when you're talking about D.C., the forces are always kind of against things getting done. And and if you mm-hmm. bet that nothing gets done, you're 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 right. You know, 99 times out of 100, but I'm a little hopeful. I'm hopeful that they can find some middle ground, particularly on the pandemic. And I'll be interested to see. I mean, uh, in my view, his maybe his his big plans will now be foiled with the Republican Senate. But honestly, his reelection chances have increased, assuming he wants to run for reelection. I mean, I think his uh, his opportunity has really increased, been handed to him here to walk the walk and and be that kind of moderate uh, calming influence as a president and see if they can find some areas of agreement. And I mean, Clinton did that in his 
second or uh, in uh, at the end of his you know first term and mm-hmm. after ninety four, and it really worked. Yeah, so. it was a big success for him. So we'll have to see if that happens here. All right, we're closing the door on twenty twenty election, and we're gonna get back to books. All right, catch us next time. <laughs>